This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi and the intense conversation that follows. Yes. So, uh, Jesus we've been talking about is on this he's on this little roll since encountering this Syrophoenician woman out in the region of Syrophoenicia. I guess that's kind of self-explanatory, huh? The Canaanite woman from Syrophoenicia. The region of Tyre and Sidon. There you go. And uh, he, what did, we, what did we suggest that he discovered or learned or became shockingly aware of? That his mission is also for the Gentiles. Right. Like directly, not just indirectly, but like directly to actually work with them and, and, and bring that mission to the Jewish people. So um, he, it's time for him to double down, if you will. Like he's going to take this lesson that he's been trying, because it's been the last few stories now. Jesus, if you remember this last one, he goes and he feeds the 4,000, which was in the region of the what, Brent? The Decapolis. The Decapolis. The disciples like get it, but they don't get it. They're in the boat. Eleven, blind man, eyes that cannot see. Like they're having a hard time grasping this point. And so Jesus, I think, just goes, all right, we're going to go to like the worst of the worst of the worst places you can go to. So he ends up at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, we could probably even go back to the ancient, ancient world, so long before Jesus. Like, let's go back into the Old Testament. And what is the God we're always dealing with in the Old Testament, Brent? Baal. We got this Baal, right? And we've talked about the Phoenicians. Oh, interesting connection. Didn't even think about that. To the Syrophoenician woman. Um, but we've talked about the Phoenicians all the way back. I think we even touched on this in the Elijah podcast. Uh, we talked about Baal worship and the Phoenicians uh, and those, those kind of things. But uh, Baal was very prominent in the worship of the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, uh, and and the nuances change depending on which country you might be in, uh, but but there is a lot of consistency as well, kind of across the the experiences. Um, Baal was seen uh, almost without exception as the god of agricultural fertility. He was the god that would bring rain. Thunder was his voice. Lightning was his weapon, and rain was his uh, quote unquote gift to the earth. Uh, water was the common image of Baal uh, kind of represented his seed, if you will. Therefore, whatever the ancient world, uh, whenever you found like springs or uh, any any water source, especially if it was coming from underground, it got connected to Baal. And so this location here in the Old Testament would have been a major, major um, uh, uh, Baal connection. You've got this uh, water source flowing out of the rock face. Um, in Jesus's day, Josephus, uh, he... Most historians think he he exaggerates, but he talked about how they put a, a weight on a cord to find the bottom of this spring, to find where the spring went, and it just went on for miles. Probably an exaggeration. Not sure how long of a rope they had, but probably a little bit of exaggeration. But nevertheless, a very, very deep spring. And today, is there water flowing out of it? There, There is and there isn't. It's not flowing out of the same spot that it was flowing out of. There's another source, if I remember my, my data correctly, there's another historical source that talked about seven different springs coming together at this one water source. This is one of three uh, water sources that forms the, the headwaters of the Jordan River. So you've got, uh, this is the water source from Mount Hermon. Um, I don't know why I'm going to blank now all of a sudden on the other two water sources that flow together to form the Jordan River. But this is one of those those three uh, water sources that are going to form. If you want to know the other two, you have to come to Israel. <laughs> there you go. I'll finally have my information, my data ready when you come there. Um, so, so 
in their day, and we'll actually show you a picture later um, of where the water flowed out of. There was a large cave, massive water source flowing out of it. Today, there's still a water source there. Uh, you've been there, Brent. Beautiful water flowing kind of over these uh, terraces, but not nearly the amount that would have been coming out of there and not exactly from the exact same location. Um, same water source, though. Do we know, uh, like as far as recorded history, was water always at this source or did it like I, break open at some point yeah i am not aware of any knowledge that says that this like kind of came out of nowhere like some other water sources that we will end up studying and, and whatnot um where, where it has a beginning i mean obviously geologically it would have had a beginning at some point but i'm not aware of historically any significance there um so this would have had like uh very intense bale connections uh, as a as a water source. I guess my point was it, it wasn't like an event where it broke open and they said, oh, well, this is now where the God is. Yeah. It was just the scale of the source is what right. made them think this is where the God is. Right. And that's a, that's a good question. I'm not aware of anything. Who knows? Maybe uh, somebody out there knows something I don't. But I don't believe that there's a historical point um, where that gets connected to the to the gods. So just kind of review. I think we, we touched on this in the Elijah podcast, but um, just to review uh, in the winter, uh, this is how the myth goes, uh, the the pagan myth. In the winter, everything begins to die. And this is because Baal has left this earth and has went down into the underworld. And he pursues his mistress. And according to which country you're in, the mistress changes. But in the Old Testament, it was Ashtoreth. Uh, and so Baal is pursuing Ashtoreth, his mistress. And uh, she is the god of sexual fertility. So two fertility gods, one of agricultural fertility, one of human fertility. And Baal pursues her, and she continually teases him uh, to the point of uh, ejaculation. And I'm not trying to be crude or funny, um, but just to give you all the proper historical context here. Um, but she always teases him to the point of ejaculation uh, and, then, and then pulls away. And the rainy season, according to this myth, is actually Baal's seed watering the earth and bringing life to everything around which is why in the spring, uh, Baal grows weary of this game every year and comes back. He emerges from the underworld, and that's why uh, agricultural spring, agriculture springs back to life, as Baal has now returned to the land of the living, if you will. So this myth will eventually evolve. Like after the Old Testament, this myth will, and those days of like the kings and, and the judges, this myth will eventually evolve under the Greeks and it will move from Baal worship to Pan worship, um, which is the preferred God of the Greeks here when it comes to sexual fertility, at least in some ways, there'd be lots of options with the Greek gods, but this is one of them. And this becomes a place of Pan worship. They're actually going to call this place uh, Peneus. Penius, or when you put it in the Roman language, the Romans will um, kind of screw up the the name and they'll call it Banyas. So it would become from Pan, Penius, named after Pan, to Banyas in uh, the Roman world. And so um, when Herod, we've talked about Herod the Great before, when Herod the Great dies, what does he do with his kingdom, Brent? It gets split up between three sons. Yes, three sons. We have uh, Philip all the way in the north. And then you have um, uh, Antipas in the central part of the kingdom. And then you have Archelaus all the way in the south. And so Philip ends up in this region. This region, this name here, Caesarea Philippi, is going to come from Philip uh, in an effort to gain the admiration of Caesar. Because obviously Herod the Great was really good friends with Caesar. He even built him a big city on the coast that we sometimes called uh, Caesarea. People sometimes call it Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea by the sea. 
Uh, it is the Caesarea in in essence that that's more famous. Got the famous harbor, one of Herod the Great's ba- great great constructions. Um, and so Philip wants to kind of follow in the footsteps of his father, so he builds a Caesarea. And I'm sure somebody kind of tapped him on the shoulder one day and said, uh, "Hey, Philip, uh, your dad already built a Caesarea." And so he says, "Well, I will call it Caesarea of Philip." And that's how we get Caesarea Philippi. Now, why here? Why does why does Philip build this new Caesarea here? Well, because this um, celebration of Pan uh, actually had an annual festival, and it would have brought uh, some estimates are hundreds of thousands. Some, I've even heard one scholar say maybe even as much as a million people would have come during the month of this celebration to Banyas to celebrate the festival of Pan. The festival was actually called Pandemonium. Uh, that's where we get that word of pandemonium. And uh, there would have been a lot of, and I mean, this would have been a, a big commercial consumerism festival, like a lot of money to be made here. And so I think Philip wants to turn all that momentum, all that economic energy, if you will, into a blessing for Caesar. And so he builds this place up for pandemonium. And that's um, where you end up getting um, Caesarea Philippi. So. They celebrate the Pan uh, cult, which is also a sexual fertility cult. Um, uh, it's not Baal worship, but it has a lot of similarities. Uh, they have a, a six-foot uh, erect um, penis that's made of gold that they will take from the main temple of Pan. They will put it on a cart during Pandemonium. They will cart it down the main streets of uh, of Caesarea Philippi, and uh, the women will jump on the cart. They will uh, caress the statue. Uh, they will get worked up into a frenzy. It's a, a big, um, well, it's a, it makes Las Vegas look like child's play. It's it's uh, going to make the debauchery that's potential at Mardi Gras look a little tame. Like if we start to think of these things, we're just starting to scratch the surface of what takes place during Pandemonium. While the while the um, while the women are engaging with the phallus, the men are actually over in other parts of the temple grounds, uh, having bestial um, relations with ghosts, with goats. Um, they actually have a temple called the Temple of the Dancing Goat. Uh, that's Pan. If anybody's ever seen a picture of Pan, Pan is this half goat, half man. He's got the body of a goat, the torso of a man, and the head of a goat. That's Pan. And so his myth is one of sexual fertility, uh, hence the erect phallus in his temple. And uh, you're trying to please Pan and kind of um, uh, arouse Pan, if you will, by engaging in relations with, and so one of the temple, one of the temples is a big, large mud pit with uh, goats in it, and that's where the men go during the festival to engage in sexual relations with the goats. And if this is all horribly disturbing, it probably ought to be. It's all a part of the lesson here. Which, by the way, speaking of the lesson, you can actually uh, get uh, a little bit less graphic description of this. But I, I learned this lesson under Ray Vanderlaan. He does have a DVD for this. Um, and this lesson is <laughs> actually a really hard lesson he talks about uh, to film because they had to film it in a way that would be not graphic. And how do you communicate the depth of what we're talking about here without talking about it at all? And uh, But anyway, it's, uh, what volumes have we got here, Brent? Uh, it's just called On the Early Church, Conquering the Gates of Hell. We'll right. have a link in the show notes for you. Link in the show notes if you want to get that DVD. It's a set of five lessons, and this is the first of the five. There you go. Yeah, every one of his DVDs has about usually five to six faith lessons on it, uh, sometimes a little bit more. Um, but this happens to be the first one on that volume. So there you have it. Uh, they called this place in Rome. This had a secular name. The culture around it knew it as the gates of hell. 
they called it the gates of hell. Literally, you have the water coming out, this mysterious water source from this un, this unknown underground spring. Literally, the gates of hell. Like they just saw that as this is the place. Like this is where Baal goes into the underworld. This is where Pan. This is the gates. This is the literal gates of hell where the underworld meets this world, and that's where all this fertility comes from. Did they consider water to be the abyss? Or that idea of abyss like the Jews did? Not necessarily. Not that they're completely disconnected because you have this water source coming from underground. So there is somewhat of a connection to this idea of Hades and Baal and where fertility comes from and all that kind of stuff. But not in the same way. They would not have equated water to chaos in the same way as the Hebrew mind. Um, and uh, there's one other gates of hell, which we will end up talking about probably in session four if we do. I don't know if we do well or not. But anyway, there's one more Gates of Hell. It will be found in Asia Minor, uh, biblical Asia Minor. And it's modern-day Turkey. And this is the other one. So um, if you want to come see both of them, come with me on my two trips. Uh, and we'll take a look at both of them. Uh, one on one trip and one on the other. But they call this the Gates of Hell. So with no further ado, Brent, why don't we get into the text and start reading where we left off in Matthew chapter 16. All right, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, so I picture just the first line is just stunning. Like Jesus arrives at the region of Caesarea Philippi. And if if the disciples had a hard time being in the Decapolis, this is this is nothing like the decapolis. They're squirming out of their sandals. Oh, oh my goodness! And and they this is this is going to be rough. Like I imagine, none of them want to be here. And I we have no indication. I just wonder what time of the year it was. Was it during the festival? Was it a quiet time of the year? Was it like what's going on here? I think there might even be some indications. This is not like quiet. I was just in. Uh, let's see, a uh, couple months back, it was spring break. I was in Leavenworth, Washington. If anybody knows anything about Leavenworth, it is uh, it was not the time of year to be there. Uh, March, it wasn't the local spring break, so there was nobody there. It was like a ghost town. This is probably not the ghost town time of year we'll see a little bit later in this passage. Is it during pandemonium? I don't know. I'm not making that case, but I would. it would be interesting to know. But they get there, and Jesus says, so who do people say that I am? True rabbi move here. Like, he's pulled them out of their context. He's put them in an uncomfortable situation. He's got, a, he's got an intentional, purposeful question. Who do people say that I am? And I love their, I love their reaction. Some say uh, John the Baptist. Okay, that makes sense, especially if John the Baptist was his rabbi. He would look like John the Baptist. He would act like John the Baptist. That would be a good rabbinical answer. You're your rabbi, Jesus. Uh, some say Elijah. That makes me that makes me wonder if Jesus was pretty uh, pretty what Brent fiery fiery. I wonder if Jesus Full had more chutzpah. Yeah, I wonder if he had more chutzpah than we picture him in the videos. Really stoic, and he's got a beauty pageant sash on as he walks silently through the crowds. A lamb wrapped around his neck. Yes, I wonder if he had a little bit more fire than we a little more chutzpah than we give him credit for. And but then I love this one, Jeremiah, or what, like why that. Like of all the people, why Jeremiah? And I have a hunch. I wonder if Jesus is forgive your enemies, forgive your enemies. What was Jeremiah known for? Do you remember what, he, what do we what do we say about Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, right? And, and why was he the weeping prophet? All of the wasn't he one of the ones that were like right as they were being carted off to Babylon? Uh huh. And yep. so it's like everything is. And his message that God gives him is so pro Babylon. 
like at the time when everybody is being smashed and destroyed in Jeremiah's messages, hey, everybody, just surrender to the Babylonians. Just surrender to the Babylonians. Like his whole book, I'm, I'm actually writing out right now in my disciplines, I'm writing out Jeremiah. And it is just like paragraph after paragraph of Jeremiah saying, no, this is your story. You're going to be conquered and smashed by the Babylonians. And don't run, because if you run, you're just going to be conquered and smashed twice as much somewhere else. So just surrender to the Babylonians. Like his, his message is so pro-Babylon. Like, I wonder if Jesus says, forgive your enemies, is being perceived by some as being so pro-Roman that they're like, oh, he's Jeremiah. Anyway, I have no idea, but I find that, of all the people you could say, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, Jeremiah? Anyway, I find it to be interesting. And so, uh, and, and so uh, go ahead and pick up where you left off. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. All right, and here's that reference. What is that a reference to, Brent? Sowed. There's that sowed. So we've talked about the pardes, the levels of Jewish hermeneutics, talked about Peshat and Remez and Drosh, and here's, and here's that sowed. It's that mystery that only God can give you. And Jesus is like, Peter, you just got sowed. Like only God could have given you that gift. You didn't deduce this. We didn't teach this to you around campfire. Like the connection he just made, and, and I've always struggled with that because I'm like, he, he wasn't able to deduce that Jesus was the Messiah? Like what? And, and I think it's, it's not the Messiah piece that is sowed. It's what Peter chooses to, to say because he says something very, very intentional. What was his exact response, Brent? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The son of the living God. And that phrase only shows up a few times. Um, I wonder which one Peter is thinking of as a remes when he says it. I wonder if he's pretty worked up as the ringleader of the disciples. I don't want to be here, Jesus. Why have you drug us to Caesarea Philippi? I'm going to give you the answer you want so we can get out of here. And I wonder if he, I wonder if he was thinking of like Joshua 3.10. Do you have Joshua 3.10, Brent? We've used this verse before, by the way, a handful of times this session, but uh, read it to us again. Listen to this. Uh, let's see. I'm going to actually start in nine. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord, your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. There's your seven nations right there. There's our seven nations. And if you notice what it said, this is how you will know that the what, Brent? The, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. See, I wonder, I don't know. I just wonder, what was in Peter's mind when he said, you are the son of the living God? That's an interesting phrase to use. It's only used a few times. Living God. It's also used in David and Goliath. Like, I wonder if Peter is thinking back going, ooh, Jesus, we are going to get these pagans. Like, you are going to, oh, you are going to. But Jesus' response I mean, that Joshua is, one, I mean, the seven, the seven nations right oh, there, yeah. and they're just in the middle of I know. the most pagan, like... Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty strong argument. I know. Now, Jesus' response kind of throws me a little bit because I would just make that argument. But Jesus is like, oh, Peter, you've just been given sowed. Now, either Peter doesn't realize how brilliant he was or Peter actually meant another passage or maybe Jesus is pulling him to another passage because the first mention of living God is where, Brent? Do you have it? Deuteronomy 5. All right. Go ahead and, go ahead and lay this on me. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. 
And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire, as we have, and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says, then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. All right, so here's this first mention of living God, and I wonder if Jesus goes, oh, Peter, yes, you uh, you got it. And I wonder if Peter was thinking about things like Joshua or Goliath, but Jesus is like, oh, no, it was like that day when you heard the Lord speak, and you thought to yourself, well, who can live hearing the word of the Lord? Now, now go ahead and give me the next, just the next few verses. I'll probably stop you at some point, but what does is, what is the next little verse in, Deut- in Deuteronomy 5 say? The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Yeah, I I hear that, and I almost hear Jesus going, it almost feels like the same conversation. Like God hears the Israelites, and he goes, oh, that is so good. I wish that their heart would always be like this. Peter says it. And Jesus goes, oh, Peter, that is like so good. Like, I just wonder if there is, I don't know. I'm not saying that definitively. I wonder if there's a play here in a remez right there. And that's what makes Jesus go, oh, Peter, it's not the Messiah piece. I can deduce that with my logic. It's the reference to the text, Peter. Good work, Peter. Maybe even you don't even realize how good of work it is, but good work. So, if we're reading, well, go ahead and finish that. Uh, go back to Matthew 16 and finish out the, the chapter for us. Or not the chapter, but the story here. Uh, let's see. I'm going to start back. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right. So uh, here's that passage, like, on this rock, I will build my church. And, and we've, we have had theological debates over the centuries about what, what's taking place here. Of course, from a Catholic perspective, what is the rock, Brent? Peter. Peter. Peter himself. Like, Peter is the rock, that first pope, that first papal authority upon which the church is built. And I, I don't think that's even incorrect. I think, yeah, Peter was the leader of the early church. And I don't, I don't have to be full Catholic and understand the papacy in the same way and all that kind of stuff to just make an obvious recognition that Peter is that first leader. So I think there's some truth there. I'm not Peter, saying Peter means rock, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he changes his name right here, right? This is where he finally he changes his name. So... Um, which is a huge defining moment. Like Peter right now is on cloud nine. Like Peter is flying high. He just got told he had sowed. His name was, what was his name before Peter? Simon. Shimon. Shimon, which you hear Shema, Shema, to hear. Shimon means somebody who listens. And his name gets changed from somebody who listens to Rocky. It's not Petra, it's Petras. So Petra would be like bedrock. It would be, it would be like a cliff face. But he names him Petras, Peter, Rocky, which there's a whole other explanation there, but no time for now. Talk about that some other time. Um, but he names him Rocky after this moment. Like this is, a, this is literally a life-defining moment for Peter here at this location. 
Um, so, so it could be Peter, uh, and I think there's some truth to that. What have Protestants always said the rock is, Brent? The confession of exactly. Messiahship. Right, right. this profession of faith, this you are Jesus Christ, the Mashiach, and this, this profession of, well, that's the rock, that confession of Jesus' lordship as Lord and Savior. That's going to be the rock on which the church is built. Good Protestant theology. And I don't think that's wrong. I, don't, I think that's, that's at play here. But if I view this as a Jewish reader in Jewish context, Jesus is a rabbi. And you will not, I think we've talked about this before, Brent. If not, it's time to talk about it. A rabbi is never going to talk about something that he can't what? Point to. You have to be, he's not, Eastern teachers are not abstract teachers. They don't talk about things in the abstract. He's just walked all this way, maybe in silence. Like who knows? Caesarea Philippi is a good distance from the galley. It's a bit north. Yes. And there's nothing in between, right? Yeah, there's going to be a good day or two. There's nothing in the story, the narrative. They don't stop. He just heads straight for Caesarea Philippi. I wonder if he just goes there in silence, especially as they get closer and they start realizing where he's going. Uh, Who knows? But a rabbi goes to this place on purpose so he can actually point to something because he will not talk about something and not point at it. So he changes Peter's name from Shimon to Petros. I will call you Rocky. And on this Petra... Jesus said, not Petros. It's not, I will call you Petros and on this Petros. It is, I will call you Petros and on this Petra. Remember Petra from the book of Obadiah. Like on this bedrock, on this cliff face, uh, I will build my church. And we actually have um, some pictures to show you. So uh, we're going to have a presentation in the show notes that you can pull up if you do it that way. If you're using podcasting, um, apps or whatnot that support chapters. Uh, you'll see these pictures come up. But uh, the first uh, picture that we're going to we're, we're looking at here is the picture of um, just uh, this is this is the rock face at Caesarea Philippi, where you see the cave all the way on the left. That dark cave all the way on the left. That's where the water came out. So this is the water source. This is you are looking at the gates of hell. You are looking at the gates of hell in this photo. Now, we're going to go down and take a look at these different, because there are different pieces of the photo that you're looking at here. This next picture here is the picture. There's that cave, and it's changed over time. That cave's gotten bigger. Things have collapsed and fallen in over the centuries. But that was the cave out of which the water flowed, that massive, those springs that came together, those underwater, that underwater water source came out of that cave. They used to think there was a temple around this water source. They've now discovered that there was not. They've not they haven't found any remnants of a structure there, and they actually found the structure they thought were there at another location that we'll talk about in another lesson. But the, uh, the next picture is this picture of, uh, so this is right, in, so if we were standing looking at the cave and we turned 90 degrees to our right, uh, you would be looking at the, uh, the Temple of Pan, the Grotto of Pan, I believe it was called. And this is where that statue stood. Uh, in fact, let's go ahead and uh, the, that's the next picture here. This is, you, you'll see that larger little cave niche there. That's where that large six-foot erect phallus stood. Probably in the middle of the grotto, there is probably even a statue of Pan himself. And at the very least, you see all those niches in the rocks in that photo, little tiny niches. In there probably would have been all kinds of uh, shrines and little idols of Pan in those niches, maybe others, but definitely you would have found Pan in those smaller niches. And then, so this uh, this picture is this graphic representation of what you are looking at in all those other photos. 
that building all the way on the left of this photo is the temple that they thought was there that is not. So that that was never there. And you can see the cave just behind it. So there would have been a cave without a temple there on the left. And then you see um, the grotto of Pan, kind of an open it's not an enclosed temple. It's an open grotto. And so you, you see that uh, that courtyard area there in between the two temples. And then you have a temple um, you have a temple to Zeus there, kind of right in the middle. Uh, they took the opportunity being such a common place to to put a temple there to Zeus in the in Greek mythology. Right next to the temple of Zeus, you can't even really see it, but right, tucked right into a niche there is a nymphaeum. There's a um, there's a nymphaeum there. And then you have uh, the temple more to the right, a uh, small little structure. That is the temple of the, uh, that's the temple of the goats. So that's where you would have gone to have the relations with the goats there in that building. And then you even see like a small little amph- amphitheater there kind of more towards you in the foreground of the photo on the right. And that's where they would have told the story of the myth. Um, they would have done that play, especially during the festival, probably a couple, a few times during the day. They would have told the story. That's the, that's the theater of the dancing goats, uh, they called it. So this is, this is what you're looking at. And, and this next photo uh, is, so, so we're now kind of looking across all those structures. Like I can see all those, the ruins of all those buildings I can see the amphitheater just to the right sitting there. But then I see a hill up on the side uh, with where the trees are in the background of that photo. And 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 this next photo here, uh, this is where I, I, I've learned the lesson. Every time I've gone with Ray, and actually this is one of, this is my last tour I was on with Ray. Um, he's standing there almost in the back, uh, standing up. Um, not Chance, he's in the bandana, not that guy. The guy with the hat. And uh, this is where I got to learn the lesson. And we don't know. Listen, we don't know where Jesus was at. I'm not going to make some grandiose claim. We have no idea. Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. But I'm telling you, a rabbi is going to come to a region so that he can make a physical, concrete point, not an abstract point. So Jesus is somewhere, whether he's down down at the bottom in the grounds, or whether he's up here on this hill or some other hill, or in the distance, I don't know. But in my mind, as a Jewish rabbi with Jewish disciples, Jesus is somewhere where he can point to the rock. And now with this picture in our mind, that picture there that you're looking at, uh, I'll read this. I'll read this passage again. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, and my question is, what rock is Jesus pointing at? He, in my mind, the, the word is cliff face. The word is bedrock, Petra. I think Jesus has to be pointing to that because listen to his words. On this rock, I will build my church and the what? The gates of hell. The gates of hell shall, shall not prevail against it. Uh, this is, I think, the rock here. Yes, the rock is Peter. That's fine. Yes, the rock is Peter's confession. Okay, absolutely. Good theology. Um, but rabbinically, the rock that Jesus is pointing at is, pandem- is the gates of hell, the center of pandemonium. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to build my church in the safe little corners tucked into the corners of the triangle in Galilee. I'm going to build my church right here. And this mess, this chaos, this paganism is not going to prevail against what the kingdom of God is going to do. Uh, let's see here. I have some closing uh, 
notes here. Both these answers that we come up with, the Catholic, the Protestant, they ignore the cultural setting of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, I'm building my church and I'm bringing the kingdom of God right here. I'm going to bring shalom to the most incredible chaos and the gates of hell itself will not be able to prevail against what I'm doing in the world. Now, this raises a hundred different observations, but one of the most impactful for me as I've studied in this region is that Jesus's movement in the world is an offensive strategy. It's not a defensive one. I have grown up with a faith that worked hard to play it safe. The faith I was handed told me, hey, don't, don't go to dangerous places. Don't be in. This message is telling me that Jesus is running into the chaos with Shalom. He's looking for places where it's needed most, and he's employing it at the points of crisis. And Ray does a great job. If you ever see Ray's lesson on the DVD, he does a great job with this. But Jesus is here trusting the work of God that much. Jesus trusts the story, and he's wanting to hand us the keys. And we'll talk about the keys maybe a little bit later. later. But let's finish the chapter here, Brent, uh, with the passage here in Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Oh, man, does something seem a little off about this, Brent? I mean, it seems seems like a strange idea to uh, tell your rabbi what to do. To re- The word was what? What did he do? Rebuke. Oh, man. A disciple rebuking the rabbi. Peter is having, he's flying a little too high. He, he got a little close to the sun here. Uh, Peter's having too good of a day. He got a little cocky. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, man. Like Peter's best moment. Like his best day was coupled with his worst day. Like his rabbi just called him Satan, the opposer. Not like Satan, the guy with red tights and a pitchfork, but get behind me, opposer. Like this is a rabbinic way of looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you forget your place. I'm rabbi, your disciple, you step in line, you get back behind me, Peter, and you get where you belong and you listen. And now I I hear these words of Deuteronomy 5, like, who can hear the voice of the living God? And Peter, you step back and listen. What do they say at the end of that Deuteronomy 5 passage? We will listen to that voice. We will listen to it, Peter. You, you need to become more, you need to become less Peter right now and more Shimon. You need to become more of the one who listens. You need to step back and step in line. Go ahead, Brent. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now Ray, when he's taught me this, has a, he has a hot take on this, and I really like it. Um, the very first time I heard it, I had a hard time getting my head around it. And now I just, I just think it's so spot on. So Ray has looked at not just Matthew, but he has tried to take the synoptic gospels, which record this story, and he's tried to harmonize them, for lack of a better term. He's tried to pull these stories together and make sense out of the different records. 
because it's different in Matthew than it is in Mark, and it's different in Mark than it is in Luke, and they're all different records, and that records the details slightly differently. Now, in Matthew here, Matthew makes it sound like that whole conversation was with who? Brent, between Jesus and... And the disciples, at least the end portion. Absolutely. But if you look at Mark and Luke, especially Luke, I believe, if I'm getting my Gospels correct, the record actually says he turns and says to the crowd. Now, wait a minute. Like, what crowd? He's not in the triangle. So what crowd has to be there, Brent? The pagans. At some level, this has to be about the pagans, right? The pan worshipers. Yeah. He's in the region of Caesarea Philippi. In the Matthew gospel, it almost seems like these are different conversations as you're reading it because the one section ends with, and he tells them not to tell anyone he is Messiah. And then it kind of like picks up a new conversation. And so as From you read that it, time on, yeah, Jesus began to explain. Absolutely. And so we kind of read that as like a break and a new story. But when you look at the other gospels, I don't think we should read it that way. I think we're supposed to read it as, but it's at this moment that Jesus starts telling them this new, this new narrative piece. But they're still standing there. They're still in the same moment. And Mark and Luke make that more clear. It's more of a seamless conversation, one interaction. And that makes the crowd, the pagans here in Caesarea Philippi. And so if that's the case, then you go back and you read those words again. And imagine Jesus, go ahead and read the words that he says. uh, And imagine Jesus saying this to the pagans. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And the other Gospels add another statement. They say, Jesus says to the disciples, Anyone who is ashamed of me... I will be ashamed of them before my father. And I wonder if, as Ray told it to me, I wonder if Jesus turns and he shouts this to the crowd in this horribly uncomfortable setting. And the disciples are like shrinking into the shadows, wishing their rabbi would just, oh, Jesus, no, not now, not here. And he turns and he looks them in the eye and he says, anyone who is ashamed of me before is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him before my... Like, don't you be ashamed of me as I sit here and tell you that this is where we're going to build our church. I, I Just such good, such good, tasty little stuff there. Good stuff. A lot of, a lot of things there, Brent. That was a, not one of our shortest podcasts we've done. Jam-packed episode anyway. Yes, it was. All right. Well, if you want more details about the show, go to BaymontDiscipleship.com. Check out our new news tab there. We've got a, a newsletter that we're launching Absolutely. called the Baymont Messenger. Hey, if you're not signed up for the Baymont Messenger, get on the subscription list. It's got a form there. Get uh, all kinds of news and links and details about upcoming trips and seminars and anything anything interesting that's happening. We'll Absolutely. We'll let you know that way. That way, if you're not... Uh, if you're not caught up on the podcast or whatever, you don't have to, you don't have to try to wait to get your news. We'll we'll give it right to you. It'd be great. That was right. All right. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast today. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.